Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Dr. Brenda Shoshana is a psychologist, speaker, author, and longtime Zen practitioner. Her work is dedicated to integrating Eastern and Western psychology and philosophy and applying the timeless wisdom to our everyday lives. Her latest book, which is a treat, Zen Play, Instructions on Becoming Fully Alive, is available now. And she's here to talk about that and really to dive into the really powerful teachings that are available around Zen, Zen wisdom, and Zen play. Brenda Shoshana, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Really, it is. Dr. Brenda, yes. No, just Brenda's enough. <laughs> oh. Um, well, let's jump right in. For those who aren't familiar with the practice of Zen, what exactly is Zen? Uh, that's actually that, that question is fundamental to, to the practice. And it's what you call a koan, which we could talk about in a little while. Yes. Many people think of Zen as chilling out or going with the flow or let's be so Zen, so Zen, let's take things easy. But actually Zen is a very intense, focused practice, practice into the essence of your life. Mm. into the heart of, of who you are and why you're here. Mm. And it's, it's a practice. It's, that, that's very, very important to emphasize because some people say, well, I'm going to get enlightened and it'll be a day, a week, a year, whatever. But Zen is a lifelong practice. And I'll talk a little bit more about why that is if, as we go along. But, but they say, if you see truly, truly, through the fog, even at the very last moment of your life, that everything is fine, mm. is fulfilled and wonderful. So Zen is the practice of that seeing and making it real and living and living that reality as well. Mm. When did you start practicing? When did you discover Zen? Uh, that's a very good question. Well, I discovered Zen in a very odd way. I was 15 years old, and, and my history teacher in high school came over to me, and he had a package wrapped up in a little brown paper bag, and he said, take this home and don't tell anyone that I gave it to you. Just go by yourself and read it. So, you know, this day and age, if someone did that, it would be, uh-oh, <laughs> what's he giving me, Right. But in that day, it was a bit different. So I went home with this little brown paper bag. I went into my room. I shut the door and I opened it up. And it was a little book that said on Zen by D.T. Suzuki. And I said, what's this? And I began reading it. And it was filled with what we have, the ko koans, which we'll talk about if you like, and mandos, little questions between ancient Zen masters and their students. And I was suddenly seized with such a feeling of joy reading it. And I thought, this is right. This is it. This is right. But then I thought, 
what do you mean it's right? <laughs> what does it mean? I had no idea what any of it meant. Nothing, because it's very tricky, those koans. And they're confusing when you read them. They're puzzling. They're enigmatic. But I fell immediately in love with them. And some part of me understood them, but not my conscious mind, of course. Mm. So I kept that book with me for years. And I kept reading them again and again, never know, knowing what it actually meant consciously. But I really couldn't part with the book. And even when I got married, I said to my husband, do you think my teacher will come here from Japan? Or will I have to go there? And he said, no, I think he'll come here. Mm. And indeed he did. And it took, it, I was 32 when I met him and started to actually practice. So it's not a quick thing. I, start, I got that book when I was 15, 17 years later. I met my teacher. I found you know, and the, the practice. And I never left. <laughs> At that point, I just never left. I practiced with him for almost 50 years. Wow. Wow. Well, like you say, you in your bio and on your website and what I know of you, you are a very long time, long term practitioner. Mm -hmm. And um, it isn't a quick fix and it isn't some sort of fast food um, sort of thing. Like you say, it's not a kind of just zenning out and chilling out. It's mm -hmm. much deeper and complex and intricate and beautiful. And it's so beautiful. You know, it's it's so beautiful. People say, well, I want to be happy. I want to feel good. And, and, they, and, they, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's very wonderful to feel good. And many people go to different practices in order to feel good. And in Zen practice, a lot of the times you may not feel good. It's, it's, you, it's strenuous. You mm -hmm. sit strongly. It could be painful. But, the, uh, but the, the happiness that grows, the contentment, the centeredness is way beyond a quick happiness, you know, a feel, it's not about just feeling happy for a moment and then feeling sad. It's much deeper than that. Right. It, it makes me think about in yoga speak, we talk about the tapas mm -hmm. and tapas are really sort of the efforts. And there are a lot of different kinds of efforts. You know, tapas could be lying on a bed of nails if you want to wow. be in a dream, but tapas could be just sitting down and, meditating and being still when you least want to do it, which is probably often, right? That's uh, the best, and that's the best time. Yeah. Of course, of course. It's, you know, it's not about wanting, uh, you know, usually our life is run by what we want and what we don't want. Yes. And, and we want to do what we like, what makes us feel good. And we run away from that, which we don't like. And they say in Zen, to separate what you like from what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Because it's this misery. We're always rushing to get what we like and avoiding what we don't like. And in Zen practice, you just sit down when the time comes, no questions asked. Whatever And whatever you like or don't like doesn't matter. Right. Isn't that amazing? You just do it. Right. And, and, and one minute when you sit down, you don't like it. And then in 15 minutes later, you're loving it. That's and right. then maybe 20 minutes later, you don't like it. Then you love it again. It's like that. It's like the wave. It's like me just coming back from surfing. And one, one wave is going to be great. Another wave is not going to be so great. But do I stop because they're not all great? Right. <laughs> and actually, it's very good to sit when they're not great. Because mm -hmm. then you see through the nature of the waves. Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, no labeling. We like it. We don't like it, good or bad. We're not there to 
to do that. We're there more to see, to, to become one with the wave, whatever it is, mm-hmm. whether it's a good, a so-called good wave or a so-called bad wave. One yeah, turns yeah. into the next. It uh, brings me to a, a little segue <laughs> uh, regarding the practice of Zen and yeah. keeping the eyes open because we certainly, I certainly can't surf with my eyes closed. Right. And there is a Zen element, that aspect of really coming into that presence with the wave mm-hmm. and, um, and even in my meditation. Um, and I remember when I was in school at Sarah Lawrence and one of my favorite courses was a class entitled The Philosophy of Religion. Mm-hmm. It, it was probably my favorite class, actually. And we examined all these different um, traditions and practices and, and examined, really got to the spiritual essence of all these traditions. And one, of course, being Zen meditation. And I remember going into the city and practicing as part of this course with a wonderful teacher you're probably familiar with, Andrew Cohen. And yes, and um, this was some time ago, and he would instruct us to keep, of course, our eyes open so we don't go anywhere and we don't want to daydream. We want to be right here, right where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the difference between meditation and others and and also perhaps expand on the value of keeping your eyes open? I love that. I'd be delighted. I love that. I'd be very happy to. Well, I like what you said. That, but he said, we keep our eyes open so we don't go anywhere. You know, when you close your eyes, you become more susceptible to dreams, to mm-hmm. fantasies. And what was the one reason for opening your eyes is because in Zen meditation, we don't, we're not re- trying to reach any state, but we want to wake up from all states. So what we, when we keep our eyes open, the light comes in and we're much less susceptible to go into chasing our thoughts or dreaming or even falling asleep because that's one of the difficulties when we sit for many hours and many days. Sleepiness can come upon us, doziness, even in our life and in our sitting. So we keep up to let the light in. We're, we're letting life in. We're not blocking it out. Mm-hmm. The meditation is not to transcend anything or to block it out. It's to integrate it. Life, life comes in and we're sitting in this world and we're sitting with this world. And there is only one world in Zen and we are a part of it. And so when we keep our eyes open, we're, we're recognizing that and we're respecting that and we're, we're honoring that. I, I know that the difference between Zen and other meditations, many meditations will seek a certain state of mind or being. And, and there's a, a sense of transcending the pain, transcending the difficulty, maybe blocking it out, maybe working with a mantra. I've worked with mantras. There's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with working with mantras. And we do in Zazen also work with mantras and Zen practice. But it's, there's, there are different aspects to the meditation. One is to steady the mind and to calm ourselves and center ourselves and we work with the breath but but in zazen it's always for the purpose of as you said staying right here learning how to really be completely available to ourselves to others and to this life it's not about attaining anything else 
it's considered in Zen that chasing after a state is, is almost like in life chasing after money or chasing after this or chasing after fame or whatever we chase after, that that kind of practice is the opposite. Right. Here we want to let go. Here we, it's a process more of letting go, emptying out, and being with our original nature. You know, what comes to my mind is a beautiful story that my original, my original teacher, Soen Roshi, uh, who, he wasn't the one I stayed with all those years, but he was my teacher's teacher, and I had several years with him as well. And he said this. He said, usually when you want to see the beauty of a room, you, and you want to make it beautiful, you bring more and more things in, you decorate it, you make it wonderful, you bring in flowers and plants and pictures, and then you say, oh, this room is so beautiful, and you're focusing on all the beautiful decorations. But in Zen, to find the, the beauty of the room, we take everything out, we empty it out. Mm. And we, have the, and we have that empty room, the original room, just as it is. Oh, I love that. Isn't that beautiful? I, that, I never forgot that. And that's a very, I think, a good description of the difference between Zen and other practices. Not mm. that there's any, not all of them. I mean, I'm, I'm not maligning, by the way, any practice. I know that for different times in one's life and for different individuals, it could be perfect. Something else could be perfect. Right. No, I love that analogy and, and um, that, that reference. It makes me think of someone I had on earlier in a previous episode a while back. Her name's Ingrid Honkala. And she talks about instead of paying attention to what's in the room, what about what's actually filling the room? Like the things you don't see, like the, the light, the space, all those things that are really filling you. It's not necessarily the sofa or the light that you flicker on or turn on with a switch, but it's, it's that inner light. It's the light that's that primordial light or energy or prana or mana. It's all those things we don't necessarily see. And maybe we would see it more clearly if we actually just emptied the space so we could be more sensitive to the... Um, the expansive nature of everything that is. That's just yeah. coming to mind. Yes. Brenda, you talk about, as you mentioned, the cones, the cones. And my question is, well, first and foremost, could you go into what they are and, and why perhaps they are so important and relevant? And also, how many are there? Are uh -huh. there because <laughs> I, I've kind of researched a little bit and there are some people say, oh, the five Cohen's, some people say the hundred and something or other Cohen's and how many are there and what are they? <laughs> I love that question. Well, first let me start with what actually they're endless Cohen's and the best Cohen's are the ones that life gives you itself. But let me start and say what a Cohen is. And actually that's what my book is based on. Send play, play. We play. I have this wonderful worship. We act out the different koans and, and we see our life as a koan. And let me tell you what a koan is to start. I think ko a koan practice is one of the fundamentals of Zen practice. A koan is a question that's given to you by your Zen teacher, your Zen master. Oh, 
traditionally, although as I said, life certainly throws koans at us night and day, and those are the best ones, right from our life. But this is a question that cannot be figured out. It seems irrational or contradictory. We cannot answer this question logically. It does not respond to logic. We Usually if we have a question in our life or a problem, so to speak, we begin to try to figure it out. We create strategies. How am I going to overcome this problem, this question? How am I going to figure it out? How am I going to, to, to understand it intellectually? Our whole emphasis is on our thinking mind, on our intellectual conceptual abilities. And a koan defies that. It refuses to allow you to do that. Now, actually, I mean, and when you hear it, they can sound very illogical, like what is your original face before your parents were born? Show it to me. Show me that. That's one very famous koan. There are many of them more. The first one that most students start with, does a dog have Buddha nature, the student asks. And the Zen master replies, mu, which means no. Mm. And then he says, show me mu. What is Moon? So you see, these are, not, I'm just giving you some quick examples. These are not logical questions. And they seem to many just silly, a waste of time. Why am I practicing with this? However, if you think for a moment, life itself is not something we can figure out. We, the way we work with life, we try to figure it out, conquer it, understand it, conceptualize about it, label it. <clears throat> and that itself, from the Zen point of view, is the cause of our suffering, a big part of the, our suffering. And so Zen offers a completely different way. It's not about the question itself. It's a completely different way to interact with life mm. as play. <laughs> and uh, as we, 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 it forces us into our intuition, into our body, into our a different level of knowingness. It says, how do you know the world? How do you interact with it? Only through your mind, the thinking mind, which goes around and around? No, here we will. So you're being introduced to a completely different way to interact with yourself, with life, with the world, a way that will not spin you around and around and keep you in a trap. Mm. And I want to give you a lovely image about ways, a way to work with a koan. This is a beautiful image from Zen practice, which is you just sit with your koan. Don't think about it. Take it with you. Sit with it like a mother hen sits on her nest with her little eggs waiting for those chicks to be born. Just keep them warm. You just accompany them. You're sitting there keeping those chicks warm. <laughs> You're keeping your colon warm. <clears throat> You're sitting with it. And when the chicks are ready, they pop through the shell all by themselves. How beautiful. Life bursts through. And when, and when the colon is ready, the answer just, oh, that's it. Oh, it comes. It doesn't come from your head. It doesn't come from thinking. It comes from sitting with it. And when it, the when the response, I can't, I shouldn't say the answer, but when the response comes, your whole life is different. It's, it's like things shift and it's in your bones. It's, it's nothing you can lose. And, and, and your balance, your equilibrium, your interaction with life shifts. And, li and then you see that life is a koan. Mm. 
and many, many things that we really struggle with in life and we just cogitate over and try to control, that never works. So when you approach it like a koan, the same way you're not going to get upset, you're not going to try to dominate the question or, or fit it into a mold. You're going to sit with it, be with it, and allow it to tell you. Allow it, like a little chick, to burst through when, when it's ready to be born. Mm. So there's also patience involved, right? I sat with one koan for several years. And I would, every time I went to my teacher, for many, for a long time, he would ring the bell. No, no, no. You bring an answer to the teacher. No, no, no. They keep kicking you out. No, 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 no. Go back more, 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 more. Keep sitting. Keep practicing. And in a way, that's that's a koan too. The way they react because it teaches you patience, mm -hmm. and it also teaches you how to deal with rejection. Yeah. And looking for your answer from someone else. As long as you think someone else has your answer, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> but then. If you keep enduring this and going through this and living with this and practicing with this, one day you, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what he says or thinks anymore. Mm. You know when you have your answer. So it breaks into some kind of thing we have with authorities too. Oh, it has many, many functions because many of us are seeking some authority, somebody outside ourselves, yeah. something to give us the truth of our own, that we have, that's our own. Um, we're longing for this. We're desperate for it. We don't realize it's all inside ourselves. Mm, powerful. So that, yeah, it's very powerful, this practice. So that kind of practice, if we can, and, and everybody can't stand it or, or continue with it, but those who do, those for whom it's correct, it works on many, many, many levels. Yeah. I can I can just feel the potency even as you speak. And I have dabbled in Zen. I started studying with a Buddhist Zen teacher when I was, in, of course, at Sarah Lawrence. And then I continued for a couple years. Um, when I graduated in New York City, I uh, went to a party and I just walked into this party, which sounds ridiculous that I bumped into this guy and he's like, hey, you want to go up to a Zen monastery tomorrow? And it was just purely... Um, platonic but i trusted him and i went up and, and he ended up being one of my teachers and and really? uh, teaching me a lot about zen i then got into yoga but i feel like my life and especially talking to you and learning about this work through you it's pulling me back because um i feel like as i um evolve in my life and get older the value of just letting go of that sort of um, uh, the tightness and the holding and the um, cogitation, like you'd say, of just uh, wanting to seek a lighter uh, a, a way of walking on the earth by um, just allowing that freedom to come in in ways that perhaps I'm not so familiar with, mm -hmm. meaning I'm very familiar with the practice of yoga and other approaches. What am I not familiar with? And when I study and look into Zen, it's like, well, if you want to travel, I think of this quote from Dojin. He says, if you want to, you probably know it. And he says, if you want to travel the way of the Buddhas and Zen masters, um, and I may butcher this, but he says, then expect nothing, seek nothing and, and grasp nothing. Wonderful. And 
right? And it's like, I feel like I'm moving into that sort of phase in my life where I want to move into that space as challenging as it is, the freedom of grasping onto nothing. Mm. I, um, I just got back with my family from a vacation in Kauai. And it was just, if no one's been, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> if it's calling you, it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really felt like it was like a spiritual home for me. Mm-hmm. And we spent an incredible amount of time, of course, in nature. And we did one thing out of all these sort of little adventures we had set up for our week. And we went on the longest zip line in Hawaii. I think it was about 4,100 feet in length, about a 90 second free fall. And the teachings of Zen (laughs) appropriately came into my mind when I'm hanging um, belly down. I'm from this sort of trapeze get up here and the guy's about to release the lever and I'm on this tower thousands of feet high and I'm looking through this valley to no end going about about to go 60 miles an hour and I just said this is a practice in grasping onto nothing not even my body not even this moment it's like I cannot stop this if I want to stop it And um, I was like, I was using that experience to step into this deeper sense of what Zen could be. I've said a lot here, so I'm... I think think you've spoken so beautifully. I'm so touched by the way you've expressed it. You have your finger right on the pulse. (laughs) Thank you. And, And I should add... It wasn't easy because it looks like I'm having a lot of fun, which I, which I was, but it was very intense because, mm-hmm. you know, you're going 60 miles an hour and at, and it's the longest 90 seconds uh, <laughs> imaginable. And some people loved it. For me, I was like, oh my God, make this end. And at 30 seconds, I thought I, I had my eyes closed because it got really intense. It was like such mm-hmm. sensory input to the max. And then I open my eyes and I'm still going and I'm nowhere near the destination (laughs) on the other side of the valley. And I just had to let go. I had to let go and let my body just enjoy this intense moment of literally letting go of my even expectation of what this is going to feel like, what it's going to look like, where the end will be how near it will be, and literally, literally grasp onto nothing. Mm. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. You have described the essence of Zen practice. <laughs> so, Because, you know, that's beautiful. It's almost like as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm also in awe of the courage that that takes. And you're also describing, in a way, dying. Mm, yeah. We have we don't know where we're going to go, really, what's going to happen. And rather than fight, struggle, hate it, expect this, or am I going to heaven? Am I going here? Am I going there? It's that great allowing and trusting that's really at the heart of Zen. Yeah. You know, and um, it's, it's actually, that's what we do when we go deeper and deeper in session. You know, sessions are 
longer sittings, either one day, three days, one week, three, three months, three years, whatever. But usually you go from early in the morning to late at night. No talking. You sit all day. You walk, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and an interview with the teacher, Dukkasan with the teacher. And, and as you go deeper and deeper, as you said, you know, 30 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, you know, you, you have to let go more and more. You have to. And you do. It's a natural process. It begins to happen. Otherwise, you end up in a lot of pain. Right. That resistance to just diving in, as you so beautifully described, if you resist it, oh, boy, if you, if you let the fear take over, right, and right. you want to grasp, oh, that will cause you huge pain. Right. So in, in another way, what you're describing and what Zen practice is, it's a practice in trusting the universe. Yes, yes, yes. And we don't trust the universe. We don't trust our bodies. We don't trust ourselves. And that's the mind always looking to sum things up, something to hold on to, to keep us safe. Right. And of course, that, that makes us unsafe. <clears throat> what keeps us safe is to do what you did. Right. To enjoy it, to enjoy it, <clears throat> to, to just let it happen. Yeah. And it was a way of, I would say, uh, meeting my, or dissolving my fears. Like, I love to scuba dive, but mm-hmm. I still have an intense fear of sharks. So my way of handling that, as crazy as it may sound to some, well, I want to go head on. So I'm not going to do something stupid like swimming around in the open ocean with a bunch of sharks around me although some people do that with a guide mm-hmm. and, and maybe i'll do that at some point but to get in a shark cage and meet it face to face um does something it, it helps me it, it is a it actually feels like a form another form of zen practice mm-hmm. where i am my eyes wide open and i'm in that space of expecting nothing and seeking nothing, but knowing that I'm here and I'm ready for whatever's to come and, and um, let the fear just be until it, even that dissolves and changes. That's beautiful. That's what we do really when we're on this end cushion. The same thing as you do with the, the, the shark cage, <laughs> because when you're sitting and sitting, things will come up. Yeah. You may, may not be in the ocean, but it's wherever we are, it's our mind. We're in our mind and whatever we fear. And, you know, by the way, I did want to say something about the sharks. <clears throat> Zen, you know, it's not about being foolish either, Zen practice. It's very practical and very grounded. So it's not like pretending the whole world is safe and wonderful. I mean, it's also taking appropriate action in the moment. If something is there that's harmful, you just step away. Right. You're not gonna, you know, it's not about hurting yourself or or saying one in pretending that something isn't what it is right you know you you know i was um but it's about being extremely vigilant and clear about what's there so yes of course you want to be with the sharks it's very wise to put up a a shark um a a shark tent for the sharks a a little bar prison for prison it sounds like they're in prison but the point is when you sit on the cushion all kinds of sharks are going to come up in your mind, memories, things you fear, things you didn't want to see, things we run away from, 
and if you just and as we practice, you cannot move while you're in the zazen in in a sitting. So you're forced not to run away from it. Mm-hmm. You're forced not to react to it. Try to fix it. You cannot change. You, you usually we'll try to change it. We'll make it tame. We want to make the shark chain tame, or we want to change your memory so it's not as painful. But we don't change anything. As you said, we just let it be and we're there with it. And the more you do this, the more you do, and the fear comes, everything comes. Sometimes a lot of sobbing comes during sitting. Many things, whatever comes is fine. It's what has to come. No problem about that. But the point is, the more you try to change it, the more you're holding it, you're keeping it stuck. Right. So just by allowing it to have its own life. Let the shark have his own life, and you have your life, and you're interacting for however long. You're just there with it. You begin to really see through phenomena themselves. You begin to see through it, what it really is. And not only that, my teacher always would say, Zen practice is about facing life and death, Mm -hmm. that process, being born, falling apart, Images come, they disappear, and dealing with loss. Things we're very attached to that we think we've lost. We define change, we call it loss. And it feels like loss. But we see through that also. We see through it. That clinging, the attachment, the grasping. And all of that comes from so much fear, as you said. A lot of fear. So we become stronger than our fear. The fear might be there, it might go away, but we still take appropriate action and we can enjoy life thoroughly with the fear or not. How nice is that, right? Yes, beautiful. But we see what it is. We just see what it is. It's not going to dominate our life. Right. Well, I just think of the absolute extraordinary level of fear that's so pervasive on the planet, mm-hmm. at least has been, maybe it's dissipating a bit, but um, through everything that every human, no human is exempt and how their nervous systems have had to cope Absolutely. with this. You know, everybody's been facing life and death. That's the right. most terrifying primal survival programs. And this is the Zen koan. This is the fundamental koan. What is life? What is death? Show me. Mm-hmm. And that is what's in practice. That's the ultimate, the ultimate Koan, the ultimate point of it, where are you going? Where, do, where are you from and where are you going? And, and the answer is not some intellectual gobbledygook. It's not theory. It's not words. You need to know it in your bones and in your flesh, and it's real. And then your whole life changes. It takes on a complete, then you can really, they say you can really enjoy life or you can become a real person then, not live an imitation life, live your own life. Because mm-hmm. until you really know what death is, it's hard to live. Mm-hmm. We're gripped in such terror of dying. And, and should I be good? Am I good enough? Did I follow this? Did I do that? Many, many questions. And I do think that's why the level of fear has been through the roof. And um, I see it even in my own apartment house, young people in their 20s and so, with their masks afraid to look at me. It's where I'm right, I live here right in Manhattan. <laughs> Everybody is so, so gripped. Yeah. By, and I wear my mask here too. I mean, it's not that I don't, but the, the level of fear. Yeah. As, yeah. At, is this person going to give it to me? Am I 
this is all issues that need that can clearly be worked through in Zen practice. Yeah, well, I think what you're, that's a really important point, and thank you for that. I feel like it really touches upon how Zen, more than ever, um, we need this. This need has never been greater. And, and it can really be a tool, if you're called to it, to dissolve the conditioning, the yes. conditioning of fear. Because this is just my opinion, we don't come in afraid. We're conditioned into fear through our input, through our experiences, through the TV, through our environment. And so the past year, there has been an absolute avalanche of input. And all you have to do is turn on the TV, which I don't, and... When was the last time you turned on the news and you saw something that was not fear-inducing? And uh, I know people want to find out what's going on, but especially if you're sensitive and you're already in a heightened state um, with your nervous system, with your autonomic nervous system running amok. And then if you turn up the dial of that by giving it more fear-inducing stimuli, then it's going to take you more and more into that grasping state. And it takes you, I agree with everything you say, and it also takes you into a state of illusion and delusion. That's right. That's considered one of the poisons in, in Buddhism and in Zen. Three poisons. One is ignorance. One is anger. And greed, interesting. That's a whole other discussion. But ignorance, it, mean, it's, it means delusion. You can be very smart, but be unclear. Living in illusion is what ignorance, not seeing the reality, being so frightened. And, you know, a very wonderful, very actually coming from the Hindu tradition, I believe, wonderful image about this is if you wake up at night and there's a rope on the floor and you look at it and you think it's a poisonous snake coming at you. You're terrified, terrified. But the minute you turn on the light and you see it's just a rope. Right. <laughs> what yeah. happens to the fear? It's gone. That's right. That's it's, right. It's the mind created this image of this, this horrible poisonous snake. And the mind creates all these images now, all kinds of disasters. And, I agree. It seems as if the media, I don't have a TV in my house even at this point. It, it, it just feeds this fear, these feelings of fear, of terror, images, one image after another. And of course, not only that, it does take your immune system down. It's a yeah. very, it's a very and, and you know, when you sit a lot, you're much less, you're much more impervious to these messages that come at you from outside. Thank mm-hmm. God. When you sit strongly, you're listening more within here you're not as susceptible, which is very important because some are terrific and right and many of them are not. And and the motive behind them is not for your benefit. That's right. And so for Zen, you have to learn to think for yourself and to listen within for for the true messages. They're all, the truth is inside every single person from the Zen point of view. You have all you need and this is the way to open your own t- treasure house. That's what they say in Zen. Open your own treasure house. Don't put a head on your head. What's wrong with your own head anyway? <laughs> These are very, very well-known Zen comments. 
And it teaches you to be very independent of the forces that will that exist to condition us. Yeah, that's such an important point. So glad you brought that up because uh, we do have the power within ourselves to to be these sovereign beings and to awaken our our innate and awaken our potentiality, to awaken our our God-given brilliance, whatever you want to call it. I love that. Uh, we in fact in Zen they say that's a purpose for being here. Yeah. That's our purpose. We have dominion. Right. You know, we're whole. We're complete. We're full of wisdom and beauty and all kinds of wonderful stuff. <laughs> and we're trained to think, oh, you're crummy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, yes. you're a failure. You didn't make the grade. All that nonsense. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Zen practice, we throw that off. It takes time because, as you said, and it's true, the conditioning is deep. Mm-hmm. Maybe many, many, it could be many lifetimes of, of this conditioning. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But the point is, that's why practice, practice, practice is so important. You know, they say in Zen, um, when you're finishing practice, somebody said to the teacher, I was practicing for 30 years. What should I do now? He said, oh, very good. Now practice another 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> no graduation. Shop would carry water. Yeah, it, it's a lifetime. It's it's not even a practice at a point. It's it's your life. Yes, yes. You know, is it a practice to brush your teeth? Did you say, oh, I brushed my teeth. I took a shower a week ago. When can I stop cleaning my body? Of course not. You wouldn't say that. It, it's just part of your life. The same thing as taking a shower, brushing your teeth. Yeah. Clearing your mind. Well, apologies for the very broad question coming up, but how has this practice transformed you? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't even remember. I, well, I'll tell you when I, st- I, I really have said many, 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 many times that I feel as if it saved my life. Mm. And, and that's the truth. You know, it's funny when I found Zendo finally, and I'd come out of very deep religious tradition, which I still honor and practice to some extent, but I, there was a lot of things that had gone on in my life, which had put me into a place of a, quite quite a crisis place. And I was, I came to the Zendo. It was, I, I really feel it came from God. It was a gift beyond the world. Fine. I, after that one night I went to the Zendo, I never left again <laughs> for 45 years. I kept going to that same place back. But, but, You know, I'll give you a good answer, a simple answer to it. Every time after that, all the years I returned, 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 felt like I was going home to my own self. Mm. And, and I would say, them, and I could, could never get over it. Every single time you would come in, sit in the vestibule and take off your shoes. That's the first thing. You take off your shoes. And there's a shoe rack. And then you put your bag somewhere. You're coming in free of all these encumbrances. And every time I took off my shoes, I would say, thank you. I can live again now. It would just come out of my mouth, in my mind. Again and again, that same phrase, almost every time I went for 45 years. And now that's a koan. (laughs) I was giving myself a koan. Thank you. I can live again now. And because I, for me, in the Zendo, I found the ability not to be judged or to judge anyone, including myself. No judgments. And that was true. I mean, it was true. It wasn't just said, don't judge anyone. It was very deep. It was, I, it was a place where I was permitted 
to be who I was at that moment fully, fully and freely, without all those restrictions and constrictions and conditioning, and it was fine. Mm. And then when you can be like that, then the next moment comes. And then, the, and I went through many permutations over the years. And I watched other members of the Sangha, which is the community, do the same. And to me, what was most profoundly healing was this permission to be who I was, to live, to live. Now, you know, at the Zendo, I, I was raised in, and it was a home for me. I, it was, I was raised there. I would consider my teacher, my mother and father in this life. He was my mother and father. He really raised me. I felt raised there. And it was such, it was, and in that center, nobody ever asked you, are you married? How much money do you make? What job do you do? Everybody wore robes. You're not looking at everybody's clothing, trying to pigeonhole them in one way or another. So, all kinds of people were students and nobody cared. We literally did not care about all those external signs that the world so much bases your value and worth upon. It was not, we just didn't, it was not, nobody even noticed it. It was not, nobody talked about it. It truly was, it was who you were that came out, that mattered. And you could feel it in the people, who they were, not how they looked, not their age, not were they rich, nothing like that. It just, that was all gone there. And that itself, oh my God, I love that. <laughs> I love that. And it, and I always felt, and then, then I could live. I could be with the reality of who's there and myself and, and I could change. I'd have to be the same person every year or every month. It was great. It's very it was, freeing. It was very freeing. Yeah. Well, it's an environment, it's like planting a garden, making soil in which real blooms can come. That's right. Well, for anyone listening, just uh, what's coming forward for me is the compassion of the people that really are suffering more than others, more than myself, more than my neighbors, more than family members. Everybody's had their levels of suffering, of course, but particularly during this very intense time, is there something you can offer for people that are in crisis and they're just listening to this podcast and they just go, I need something to take with me. I need some shred of encouragement or teaching or um, a koan. Yes. Well, no, what I would say is this, to take with you. I've been there, too, in, a ter in terrible crises with many losses. Three or four of the most important people in my life died in one week, and they will all find the week before. I understand. I don't mean now, but in the past. I understand how hard I feel like it will never end. It will never be over. You'll never live again. And one thing I did learn in Zen is that everything changes, changes, changes. And what I want to suggest, if this resonates with you, is that you... 
if possible, find a place near you where you live, because it's very good to have a guide, a teacher, and a group to sit with. It's pretty hard to do a consistent practice without a schedule and a community. And fortunately, there are Zen centers all over the place now. And um, I, I recommend that you... T- Go oh, for an introduction. Now, of course, many of them are closed these days, so it's even better in a, way, in a way for you because lots of Zen centers all over the country are offering sittings on Zoom. And that might sound silly, but it's a way to meet the community. Often the teacher will give a talk. You can. There's a lot available to you right now, a ton. And I would go take an introductory workshop on Zoom online, of, unless, of course, maybe you have something nearby, which would be great. I don't know if you do, but, but as I said, there's a lot available. And, and I would just find out more about the actual practice of sitting. There, as I said, there are workshops showing you how. And... Go online in your area or wherever. You can look all over the country for Zen centers and explore them. See which one resonates for you. And the thing, to, and actually being in a crisis and suffering, it's a very good time to start a practice. You, you just start to sit. You know, when I, I just want to say, when I began, I could not sit for more than five minutes. I just could not. I was too restless. My legs were stuck. They didn't go down. I couldn't. But I just did five minutes. So I did five minutes. And then I noticed I felt better. Well, I felt different all day. So I did five minutes in the evening. Not really. And then I got to the Zendo. And then one of the things I want to say is that the Zazen will take care of it for you all by itself. All you have to do is be there on the cushion, keep the, keep the posture, do the practice, and the Zazen itself will take care of the rest. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. It makes me think of a wonderful teacher, Guruji, who said whenever we would go to the mat and practice our Ashtanga, he said very little. And perhaps some of the greatest teachers have said very little <laughs> for a reason. And he just would say, do your practice and all is coming. That's right. And any yogi that's listening has certainly heard that quote or that um, said before. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're speaking, it also makes me think of the value of this work and any spiritual practice that has comes from a place of dedication and potency and, and depth. But the quote, and I believe this is Dojin, And it's the importance of connection, which I always seem to circle back with in my podcast, because when we really know who we are and when we really are in that state of the loving and the emptiness and the nothingness and the freedom or whatever you want to call all that goodness, um, it's, it's a place that is beyond, um, that, that realm of, suffering that you talk about. And it makes me think of the quote that says, there is no wisdom or holiness that is ever an excuse for the failure to love in ourselves or of course, or in others. And um, this practice in its seeming simplicity, where it can just be you in the complexity, perhaps right now sitting down for five minutes, 
you can get to that simplicity within where it's just the loving sits and nothing is bigger than that. Nothing is um, so great, even the suffering that is an excuse for you to not love. And of course, first and foremost, to come into the loving of the self, no matter how hard and difficult it is right now, it's there, it's, it's available, it's who you are. And perhaps this practice is an, uh, something that I see could be a removal of that sort of covering or separation um, or separateness from that loving um, connection. It's very, very beautiful, and um, I agree with you, and I, I deeply encourage everybody to try. And you, you asked me if there was something I could also offer to, to take with you, that I, I do a weekly podcast that I've been doing for three years, over three years, three and a half years, uh, called Zen Wisdom Today. So um, it's, it's only about 20 minutes or so, but it will give you encouragement and guidance, I hope. People have enjoyed it. It's been beneficial. Wonderful. It's and they, you can get it on zenwisdomtoday.com. Yes. Or, or you can contact me and I'll put you on the list if you want. Should I give them my, my information? Please do, yes. Yeah, you can contact me at topspeaker at yahoo.com. And um, that's my email address. Or you could go on to the website. But if you want me to put you on the list... To just contact me, and then I have a list for all those that I send the podcast to. And um, I think it, people have told me it's quite helpful, especially for, for new students. I try to really connect the practice with the issues you're having in your life. Now, that does not replace getting on the cushion and going and finding a place of practice and sitting. That's very important as well. And I hope you will do that. As, as, as Diane said so beautifully, even a few minutes even a few minutes and it is it is an act of great love it's a choice to sit down and say i'm open for healing i'm open for love i'm open i'm more than my suffering yes yeah. here to my suffering this i'm not letting the suffering run the show it's yeah. just, just feelings just transitory feelings beautifully put well, Dr. Brenda Shoshana, it has been such a gift to have you. Thank you. I could talk to you for a very long time, and perhaps you'll give me a koan <laughs> once we get off this talk. Um, you're a joy. Thank you so much. And I'll be listening to your podcast and continue to do so. God Great. bless you. And. Thank you. God bless you too, really. It's a, I love being here with you too. It's delicious. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.